Good evening. The first part of our reading this evening is taken from Genesis 6, verse 1, and we're going on to chapter 7, verse 24. Genesis chapter 6, beginning at the first verse. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal, their days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird and of every kind of animal and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. The Lord then said to Noah, 
Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one kind of kind of sorry, one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights. And I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days the floodwaters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth for forty days and forty nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals, and the creatures that move along the ground, and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. The second part of our reading this evening is from Genesis 8, beginning at verse 1, and it's on page 9 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. So it's Genesis 8, beginning at the first verse. But Noah, God remembered Noah 
and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the hundred and fifty days, the water had gone down. And on the seventeenth day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the tenth month. And on the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After forty days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground, but the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water all over the surface of the earth, so it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again. But this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you. The birds, the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons, his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land, came out of the ark, one kind after another. Wonderful. Uh, Well, do keep your Bibles open. Uh, Maybe just turn back over the page to uh, Genesis chapter 6. Obviously, we've got a lot to look at this evening. Um, So let's, let's start by praying to God. Let's start by praying. Uh, Father, we pray in line with the psalmist that uh, you would incline all of our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Lord, uh, we may be expecting something from your word this evening, uh, but Lord, uh, maybe you want to surprise us. Lord, please show us uh, what you want to show us and please help us to live in the light of your word. And we ask this for your name's sake. Amen. Um, well, by way of sort of introduction, I'd like to ask a question to us all this evening, and I wonder what kind of things come into your head. Uh, when I ask you, what makes you feel safe and secure? What makes you feel safe and secure? 
Now, maybe for, for a few, there's a few puzzled faces out there, but a few people who I think they can think of that one thing. I'm not going to ask you what it is, but I think at different stages in our life, we each look to those kind of particular things to give us a sense of safety and security. Um, and it starts at a very young age, doesn't it? I mean, when you're, you're a young child, you might have a, literally have a safety blanket or you might have some kind of toy. Um, there's a picture in a, of a boy in this who, who looks remarkably like me, and he's holding my, my blue dog as well, which is amazing. Anyway, I have to have a look at that another time. Um, but even at a young age, we all have those things that, that we, we, we cling to that make us feel safe, even at a very young age. Maybe as we grow up and we move into teenage years, um, those things might change. We might begin to feel a sense of independence from our family, and we may look for those things in, in relationships or, or with friendships. That's where we look to for safety and security. What about when we get a bit older then? Um, and maybe we look to, to marriage uh, as something that we look to for security. Or maybe it's, it's the homes that we live in, or the jobs that we have, or, or the finances coming in. Those are the sort of things that we look to for safety and security. What about when we get older, though? What about the people that we look around to for, for, for help and support when we're unable to do the things we were once able to do? I think at different stages in life, we all look to things for security and safety. And actually, that's a fundamental part of what it means to be a human being. We want safety. We want security. The question is, whatever it is we are looking to, is that thing secure enough? Is it really going to give us the safety that our hearts desire at the end of the day? And this is how we get to know it. This is why I'm asking this question. Um, before we think about the, the, and tease out the, the kind of answer to that and, and, and what we should be looking to for our safety and security, I think it's really curious, isn't it, that Noah's Ark that is still a really popular toy. I mean, you go into any toy shop in, in Brighton Hove, and there's a good chance they'll be selling a Noah's Ark with the little figures. It's got Mr. Noah and Mrs. Noah, and it's got all, two of all the animals. And we've got, we've got a few at home, but pretty much any toy shop in the city you go into, you'll find a Noah's Ark. And I think it's curious, isn't it? I wonder how many people who go and buy one of these things are aware of the significance it has, are aware of the story that we've heard read to us this evening. You see, we have this in our Bibles, not just as a nice story about animals, but to teach us that when God's judgment comes, there is only one place to be found for safety and security. When God's judgment comes, there is only one place to be found for safety and security. And as a lead up to that, we need to get clear in our minds why we need this safety and security so much. It's because of the promise of future judgment. Of future judgment. This reasonable judgment. If you close your Bibles, please open them up to Genesis um, chapter 6 and look down with me at verse 5 as I read it. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Now you're reading that and you think, that doesn't paint a very positive picture of humanity, does it? But that's what we get in Genesis chapter 6. 
as we've seen um, just a few weeks ago in Genesis chapter 3, with Adam and Eve's disobedience, that, that first sin that enters into the world, there's this decay that begins to spread. In just, in just three chapters, we've gone from, from one sin to now a whole world of decay in God's good creation. But along with what we're seeing here with the moral breakdown because of sin, there's also something else going on. I wonder if, if you noticed it as we read through. There's also a kind of a spiritual breakdown going on. Um, in verses 2 and in verses 4, it talks about the sons of God, and then it talks about the Nephilim. Um, what's going on there? Well, when the Old Testament's talking about the sons of God, it's not talking about um, so much Jesus yet as the only son of God, but uses that term to kind of talk about angelic beings, spiritual beings. And it seems likely that it's talking about some kind of angelic, spiritual beings interbreeding with, with human women in a way that, that completely goes against God's design. I mean, it sounds strange to our ears as we hear this, but, but there's, a, there's a fundamental breakdown here in God's good creation. And what it's telling us is that humanity's role in that good creation is not doing what it should be. It's breaking out against God's good design. There is this problem, and it's caused by sin, that one sin. And because of it, God's creation is becoming corrupt. Um, we were given some, uh, some apples grown by my parents uh, last week, and um, what was amazing is uh, they were very nice apples. They were more like the ones on the left than on the right to begin with anyway. What was amazing, in, in, within the space of one night, these good apples, I picked up one the next day, and half of it was completely rotten and rancid and disgusting. It was amazing how quickly, actually, an apple could go rotten. And this is the kind of thing you've got here in Genesis chapter 3. It almost happened so quickly. Except the rot that it's talking about here isn't just fruit. This rot that it's talking about is the human heart. The human heart. It says, every little bit of the human heart was only evil all the time. What does that look like when a good heart goes bad? Well, joy is exchanged for envy. That's what it might look like when a good heart goes bad. Gladness in someone else's achievement is exchanged for pride in our own achievements. Or love is exchanged for lust and self-centeredness. You see, these good things that, that God has made, <clears throat> that he has blessed his people with, have become corrupted. They've become broken by human sinfulness. And no one in the world could escape this infection. But what is at the root of this? Why, why is this such a problem? At the root of this, as it was in Genesis 3, it's not just one particular sin. Well, it is actually. It's a particular sin of disbelief. Disbelief in God. Disbelief in God's goodness. That is at the root of all of these other sins. Disbelief in God. That is why there is this mess in Genesis 6. And that is why there is this mess in the world today. That is why there is pain, there is violence, because of that original spreading disbelief in God. And this is the state of everyone's heart. It is corrupt. 
So how does God react to that corruption? Well, let's look at verse 6. It says, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Now, I think this is quite amazing. Um, This is the first time in the Bible um, up to this point that we really get to see something of God's deep emotions and feelings. He looks at everything that he has made, all the good he has made, all the things that he has blessed his children with, and how does he feel? What are his emotions? He feels regret over them. One writer describes this regret as a mix of rage and bitter anguish. Some people write off the God of the Old Testament and say, no, he is just a a bitter tyrant. He is just horrible, a bitter tyrant. I wonder, does that sound like the thoughts of a bitter tyrant when he says that he feels regret over it? I would argue it sounds more like the heart of a troubled parent. A troubled parent than a bitter tyrant. It's like having all your, your energy and your love poured into someone only for them to turn around and spit in your face and say, I never wanted you. Sure, I wanted your things, but I never wanted you. What God is experiencing here then, as his creation rejects him, disbelieves him and turns away from him, is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. The deepest heartbreak that we might feel in this life does not come close to the heartbreak that God experiences here. But we may say, Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. God almost sounds a bit surprised here. I thought God is supposed to know everything, isn't he? Surely he knew this would happen. Well, the answer is yes. Of course God knew this would happen. God knew that when he created us, he knew what it would take for him to win us back. That didn't stop him. He knew the lengths that he would have to go to. He knew that he would have to send his son to the cross to die for our sin. Even before we were born. Even before the world was created. God knew what it would take. This doesn't tell us that God was surprised. No, this tells us of God's commitment to do what is best, even knowing what it will cost him. So then what does God decide to do? as he regrets making human beings. Well, look at verse 7. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret, there's that word again, that I have made them. In what seems to be ways of of undoing the days of creation, did you see that? He said, um, men and women I'm going to get rid of, then all the land animals and all the all the animals of the air. It's almost the reverse of of the days of creation. God promises to wipe that all away from the face of the earth. And this is not a bit of a a localised flood somewhere. This is total worldwide cleansing. Cleansing as in wiping away all of the corruption, all of the infection of humanity's sinfulness so that actually the world may go back to a, a place of watery chaos like it was at the beginning of Genesis 1. Because actually a world of watery chaos would be better than the situation that is being described here. Maybe that sounds a bit extreme, but it's true. You see, God tells us why he's made this decision, why he's had to go to these lengths. 
It gives us a clue in, in verse 13 as well. It tells us that God is going to do this to bring an end to human violence. An end to human violence. You see, the world is, is full of violence at this point, as we may say it is today. And you only have to compare that with the world of Genesis 1 and 2, at the beginning of our Bibles, as God made it before sin entered the world. And how much that contrasts with it. That is a world of peace. There isn't violence. There is peace, abundance, and goodness. And it is like that because it reflects God's character, doesn't it? That he is a kind and gracious and good God. And the pinnacle at mirroring what God is like, what is the best thing that is supposed to mirror what God is like in the world? It's us. It's each one of us made in his image. We are made in his likeness. We are to be his image bearers, to show each other what God is like. But this is not what we have in Genesis 6. Humanity is not reflecting what God is like. Rather, it's reflecting the opposite. It's reflecting what evil is like. And God will not allow his image bearers, the people who are to be his ambassadors in the world, to give a false image about what God is like. So as an act of reasonable judgment, he will wipe humanity away. Every single person stands condemned, except one. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. You see, despite this corrupted world which is broken and guilty, there is one man who is different. There is one man who stands out. One man who, as it says here, finds favour in God's eyes. But how can that be? How can there be a man who finds favour in God's eyes when we've just seen that the whole of God's creation had become corrupt because of sin? Well, look what it says in verse 9. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Despite this corrupted world that is described, which is broken and guilty, there is one man who is different, who stands out. And unlike the description of everyone else in chapter 6, Noah was someone who walked faithfully with God. Just like we saw in Enoch last week in Genesis 6, Noah was described as someone who walked faithfully with God. That doesn't mean he was someone who was perfect. We'll see next week as we read on from this. Noah was far from perfect, but what made him stand out was because he believed and trusted in God. That is why the Bible can say that he was blameless in his time. Because he believed and trusted in God. The question is then, in a world of complete evil, what can one righteous, blameless man achieve? A lot. A lot. When you realise that he is part of God's plan to provide a rescue. A rescue for people who walk with God. A rescue for people through the judgement that is to come. The one who is to judge is the same person who will make a way through that judgment. Let's read a bit more about that rescue plan and what God's going to store. Verse 14. 
God tells Noah, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. So God has chosen Noah as the one who will build this, this ark, this place of protection for when God's judgment comes. So that Noah's family and the land and the air animals will not be wiped out. God plans to, to start again and gives Noah the instructions for how to build this ark. It's worthwhile just, just, just taking a minute to think about this. In the middle of God's judgment, God's judgment on, on a sinful humanity, what is he doing? He is showing grace. God is showing grace. He is showing rescue in the middle of judgment. And that's the remarkable testimony of the whole of Scripture. So we can hold true to it. That in the middle of God's judgment, which he must do to be a just God, he must punish evil. In the middle of God's judgment, there is grace. There is grace, and that is good news. The remarkable thing is when God judges, he always provides a way out, a way through the judgment. You see, God would rather you sought his grace and were saved than that you face that judgment on your own or trusting in something else apart from him and perished. He would rather that you sought his grace and were saved. But like Noah, you must believe him. You must believe him. Well, next up, Noah is to gather together male and female animals so that they may produce offspring after the flood as well. You see, not only is, is God going to start afresh with humanity, but also for animals too. It's not that animals have sinned in some way or, or they are to blame, but, but actually this gives us an indication of how far man's corruption has spread, that even the animals in creation are tainted in some way. But I wonder if you notice what else we have. We know the, the song that the animals went in two by two, hurrah. But actually, we've got another set there, haven't we? We've got the animals going in seven as well. And these are slightly different. Chapter 7, verse 2 tells us that God is telling Noah to bring in seven of every clean animal. I wonder if you've noticed that bit before. What is this? What are these seven of every clean animals? Well, this is God saying that there will be a future after the flood, actually. Not just for the recreation of the animals around the world, but for something else. The need of the seven clean animals of each type means that the future after the flood will involve sacrifice. Now we read about this, this more in, in, in the later pages of the Old Testament when God gives um, prescriptions of, of what you are to do and the kind of animals that are to be sacrificed. But there are certain, what the Bible calls clean animals, that will be offered for a sacrifice that's kind of a token of thankfulness to God and actually appointed to a greater sacrifice to God. But we'll deal with all of that stuff more next week, so you have to come back and find out what it's all about. Let's, uh, let's now look at, at Noah's reaction. And there are a couple of things to tell us um, after God has told Noah what to do, what Noah actually did. Chapter 6, verse 22 They've indented it for us to make it nice and easy. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And then chapter 7, verse 5, Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Not only does God provide a way through the judgment, but Noah is obedient to him. Noah is obedient to him. Because Noah believed God, he walked with him. He was obedient in what the Lord commanded him to do. 
Now that may sound easy, but look at chapter 7, verse 1 and 4. The Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Then verse 4, seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. I wonder, what was it like to wait those seven days? What was it like? We tend to brush over that bit and get straight to the flood. But what was it like to wait those seven days? I think those seven days were important, particularly bearing in mind that Noah obeyed God. Think about it, maybe the jeers of passers-by. Noah, what do you think you're doing building this ark? Who do you think you are? Maybe the doubts of your own family in what you say God has told you to do. Maybe your own doubts and questions. Is this for real? Does God really want me to do this? And in the New Testament, we also told that Noah was a preacher, a preacher of righteousness. Yet there was no indication that anyone listened to his warning and repented. At this point, it doesn't look great for Noah. But this is where obedience counts the most. Please don't miss that. This is where obedience counts the most. It's in that waiting time. It's in waiting for the rain to come. Now, God isn't asking us to build an ark. That's not what our obedience looks like. But he does want us to warn people that there is a future day. A future day of judgment. As we're in the process of waiting for that day to come. We are waiting for the rain to come. And just like God provided the ways for Noah to face the flood. So we can also share that he has provided us with a way to escape that coming judgment too. By believing and trusting in his son Jesus Christ. He is our ark. Jesus is our ark. So we've talked about the reasonable judgment that God promised. We've seen the only hope that was available, an act of God's grace in the middle of that judgment. And now we get to the moment when judgment is delivered. Look at chapter 7, verse 15 and 16. It says, Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. As God shuts the door on the ark, two things are happening. Two things are happening. Firstly, God is, I think, actually showing compassion to Noah. Because after after Noah's done everything, after Noah has, has preached, God shuts the door. He's not letting Noah have to deal with the thought of that. That soon, once the rain does come down, it is too late for all those who would need rescue. God has shut the door. No, I didn't have to. I think that is the work of God's grace. But the second thing he's also showing is actually the chance for repentance had finished. It was over. We don't like thinking that, but it is true. The point had reached in time when the chance for repentance was over. The judgment was to begin. God's settled judgment was about to take place on those who had disbelieved him. And because the Bible helps us to understand that this judgment here in Genesis 6, 7 and 8 
is, is pointing to a future greater day of judgment, we must also say that there will reach a point where it will be too late for people to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus makes that really clear in the Gospels. Here's a bit from, um, sorry, I've tried to fit it all on one page. I should have done a few pages anyway. Squint and pretend you can read it. Let me read it to you. Uh, Matthew chapter 24. um, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus says. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. If you are undecided about where your security lies for that day of judgment, please don't leave it any longer. Please don't leave it any longer. Please see that just like there was only one way in Noah's day, there is only one way in the future. Believe in Christ. Believe in Christ and you will be secure in that day as Noah was when he was safe inside the ark. Please don't leave it any longer. This is what continues. Um, Chapter 7, verse 17 For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. So then we see that everything outside of the ark dies. The waters rise and the world is cleansed, leaving only the ark and its inhabitants floating calmly above it all. God's saving plan And Noah's obedience can now be seen to have been worth it. Despite what Noah faced, whether it was jeers or or whatever, or self-doubts, it can now be proved to be worth it. And as they wait out in the ark all those days, something special happens, beginning of chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. After the judgment, God remembers Noah and begins to do away with the water, bringing things back to expose the land again. And as God commanded Noah to enter, now he commands him to leave. God has delivered Noah and his family and those animals through that judgment, as he said he would. He is true to his promises. Despite those difficult times that Noah faced, he remained patient. He trusted that God's saving plan was the thing to trust in, for safety and security. God had made it clear to him as he makes it clear to us. There is no better way. So Noah Knowing this and trusting this, he obeyed it even if it seemed foolish to the world. Even if it seemed like a stupid thing to do. And God answered his promise. He kept him safely through the judgment. So if you are someone who trusts Jesus for that same safety and security, can I just encourage you, keep on trusting. Keep on waiting. Don't give up on him. If it seems like a long time waiting, keep on waiting, even when it's hard. 
He is coming and he will see you safely through. Just like he did with Noah. That is why we've got this here in our Bibles. He will see us safely through. But if you are someone who is not sure, and it's great that you're here hearing this, that is a work of God. If you're someone who's not sure, you do well actually to remember Noah and this example. That he knew the only place to find shelter and safety to face that coming judgment. And that was in the safety of God himself. So be encouraged. And make sure your safety is found in Christ, our ark. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge before you... um, that our our hearts are not where they should be, that our inclinations are often broken and we disbelieve you. Lord, please forgive us. Thank you, Lord, in in the midst of your judgment, as there was in that judgment in Noah's day, and there will be in this day of future judgment, you provide a way of rescue. That yes, you are the judge, but you're also the rescuer as well. Lord, help us to look to Christ for that safety, for that rescue. Help us to remember what he did for us at the cross. And that if we are in Christ, we are safe. We are safe. We will enter that new world with you. We will pass through the judgment safely. Lord, help us always to be trusting in you. Amen.